Take your Bible and turn with me to John chapter 13 this morning. Kids, ages three and four, up to kindergarten, you can head to the back. Miss Sarah will take you up to your classroom this morning. John chapter 13. It's been a few weeks since we've been in John's gospel together. Uh, We're going back there this morning. We're going to process the second, well, it's more than half, but uh, uh, the second two-thirds of of John's chapter 13 together. I want to invite you to, if you don't have a Bible in front of you, to head to the back table and pick one up. Our time together is always helped dramatically by having these words in front of you. I want you to know that the words that I am saying, the words that I'm reading up here in the front are not my words, but they're the words, the words of God inspired by the Holy Spirit given to us through uh, the Apostle John, preserved for 2,000 years so that we might look at them together, so that we might be, uh, so we might be encouraged and edified and built up as a, as a local church, as the bride of Christ. So this morning, John chapter 13, and we're going to start in verse 16, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter together. Actually, scratch that, through verse 35. There's a handful of verses after verse 35 that we'll lump in with the beginning of 14 next week. Okay. John chapter 13, beginning in verse 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do it quickly. Now, no one at the table knew what he said or why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, 
just as I have loved you, this all, uh, this, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This passage, 16 through 35 here in John chapter 13, comes at the heels of Jesus' foot washing act. Jesus has just washed the feet of his disciples and gives some important instruction about uh, the washing that's required once and for all to be a Christian, and then the ongoing foot washing that is necessary as we walk through a world that's saturated in sin. Those who have been washed by Jesus wash the feet of one another. This was the takeaway from our time together approximately four weeks ago. Four weeks ago. Those who have been washed by Jesus wash the feet of one another. Jesus washes the feet of his disciples quite literally, physically, and then he commands them to do the same. He tells them that they ought to, uh, as his disciples, wash the feet of one another. Noticing the sin that so easily entangles the lives of brothers and sisters in Christ in the local church and addressing that sin with the blood of Jesus. Telling them that they can be forgiven, to believe the gospel afresh, to know that Jesus Christ has died for their sins and made a way for them to walk in newness of life. There is not one of us in this room who becomes a Christian, and then makes it to perfection, and isn't somehow at some point from the point of uh, where we are converted to the point where we we die, uh, does not have a problem with sin. We still struggle against the flesh that we live in. We are not free from sin entirely in this life. Now, in eternity, we will be free from that sin, and we will we will live with God in perfect and perfect obedience and submission to him. So, like I said last time we were together in John's gospel, we we took away from that 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 passage, those who have been washed by Jesus wash the feet of one another. Again, there were two washings that Jesus talks about, a one-time washing effective for eternity, and then the ongoing washing, that periodic spot check that Jesus uses his church to address in the lives of his people. The one-time washing, Jesus' work for us, that's his sacrificial death that we trust in for the forgiveness of our sins. That sets us apart. It makes us holy. It's one time. It gives us right standing before God. Jesus credits to our account righteousness. And then we have the benefits. The benefits of being washed by Jesus that one time, once and for all, when we come to him, The benefits are that we're joined together with Christ, that we're united with him, that we become sons and daughters of God, that we are are adopted into God's family. And then we are sealed by the Holy Spirit and secured for all of eternity. So there's nothing that can rip us out of the Father's hand. There's nothing that can rip us out of the hand of Jesus. We are brought into God's family, treated not no longer as enemies of God, but as sons as those who will receive an eternal inheritance in Christ and that we were joined in Christ. So when God looks at you, he sees his son, Jesus. When God looks, so if you've ever thought to yourself, even in, I'm sure you have, even in the, even in the recent memory, if you've ever thought to yourself, what does God really think about me? 
What does God think about who I am and, and what I've become and how my life has transpired? And what does God think about me? The answer to that question uh, is, what does God think about Jesus? When we know what God thinks about his son that he sent into the world as a perfect sacrifice for sin, the beloved one, the, the second person of the Godhead, the second person of the Trinity, the one who is, contains life, is the agency of all creation, the one who stands, uh, sits right now, rather, at the Father's right hand. That is what God thinks of you. You are joined to him. Your life is, Colossians tells us, is hid with Christ in God. Important to understand the benefits of this one-time washing. When you trust Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, when you repent of your sin, turn from them and go the other direction, seeking to walk according to the way that God has instructed us to walk, then, then you are joined to Christ. You are adopted as sons of God and you are secured for all of eternity, sealed by the Holy Spirit. But again, that one time, that periodic, that one time, uh, washing happens, and then we need these periodic spot checks where we, again, we're running through this life with, uh, through a sin-saturated world and our feet are bound to get dirty. We're bound to, be, to succumb to the flesh and to trust in ourselves and to ignore God's word and to do it our way instead of God's way. To think about life in the way that the world does, to be shaped by the world, to be conform to the ways of the world. And in those moments, we need a touch-up. We need a periodic spot check, a quick foot wash. And God chooses, uh, and Jesus communicates to us here, that we need to repent and believe the gospel afresh. Um, those aren't just one-time actions for sin. We, we don't just repent and believe and then everything is good and we live a perfect life. We must live a life of ongoing repentance, a life that is continually acknowledging that we are, we are prone to sin. We see the sin, we confess the sin, we hate the sin, and we turn from the sin continually in our lives. Not just one time, but a continuous life of repentance. We can say it positively, like we see what God commands, we acknowledge what God commands, we love what God loves, and we turn away from anything that does not please or honor God. Now, none of that earns us anything. Rather, we, have, we are looking to God, repenting of our sins as those who have been freed from the bondage of sin, and we are free to repent. We are free to turn. We are free to live a life that is in step with God's word. So you and I must be continually praying that God would reveal our sin through the Holy Spirit in order that we may turn from it, genuinely, lastingly turn from it. So we must repent and believe. We must Believe the gospel. When we repent, we experience genuine sorrow for our sin. We have violated God's very word to us. We have defied the sovereign creator of the universe, our heavenly father. But there's good news. And the good news is that we can run to Jesus. And that when we find a brother or sister who is entangled in sin, we can point him or her to Jesus. Sometimes when we find, uh, when we find brothers and sisters in Christ who are 
who are wrapped up and bound up in their sin, and their sin is destroying their life, sometimes we offer convenient and helpful advice. We say like, well, if you just think about it this way, or if, you're, if you change your mindset about that or this, those are worldly philosophies. That is not what we need to do as Christians. Rather, we need to say, look to Jesus. Look to the one who has, uh, who has built faith into you so that you might trust in him more. The antidote to our sin is not try hard, do better. The antidote is to run to Jesus. The punishment that was yours for the sin that you've even committed now fell on him. And we've been redeemed and we've been restored. And our guilt is swallowed up. Our shame is taken away. We are remorseful for our sin, but ultimately we look to Christ so that we might rejoice that another has paid the penalty for it. A penalty that we, as God's people, could not pay. How does Jesus intend to do this foot washing? Well, I alluded to it a second ago. This is all catch up. We're catching up here on the first half or first portion of John chapter 13. How does Jesus intend to do this foot washing? How are we as Christians called to repent and believe the gospel afresh? And the answer is right before we started reading this morning in verses 14 and 15. If I then your Lord, this is Jesus talking, if I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. So Jesus washes the feet of his disciples, and then he tells his disciples to wash one another's feet. What does that mean? It means that we are to call one another to repent and believe the gospel afresh when we find someone being overwhelmed and buried in their sin. When we find people succumbing to sin, giving in to it, giving in to the desires of the flesh, we are to call them again to repent and believe. So Jesus' plan for regular foot washing is this. It's the local church. It's together in this place with the people and the relationships that we built here. Those, this is Jesus' great plan. The church is a gift to us. Sometimes it doesn't feel like that because people are sinful and this is a collection of people who are not always trusting in Jesus uh, and succumbing to our sin. But the way that Jesus intends to perform these periodic spot checks, these quick foot washes that we need when we slip into sin, when we give into sin, is the church. Disciples of Jesus proximate to one another ready to, in love, call one another to arms in the fight against sin. Disciples of Jesus Christ applying the blood of Jesus Christ to one another, reminding one another regularly that it is Jesus' sacrifice that brings us back into right relationship with God. And that brings us then to this text this morning in verses 16 through 35 in John's Gospel, in the 13th chapter of John's Gospel. This passage builds. This is a build from the beginning of chapter 13. It's a build all the way to uh, the commandment that Jesus gives in verses 34 and 35. He says, a new commandment I give you that you love one another. This should sound familiar to you because Blaze preached on this last week. Or not on this passage directly, but on 1 John, uh, uh, a letter that the Apostle John also wrote. So, 
A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So here's what I want you to walk away from uh, from our time together this morning. This is what I want you to take. The world will know that we follow Jesus by the self-sacrificial love that we have for others in the local church. The world will know that we follow Jesus by the self-sacrificial love that we have for others in the local church. Now, we have to pay close, close attention to the context here that Jesus is speaking to really understand what Jesus means when he talks about the love that we have for one another. In a world that's continually confused about the nature of love, in a world that uses that word pretty flippantly, um, and not in a, any way uh, defined in biblical terms, uh, we can confidently say that we know what love is because we see what Jesus says here, and because we see how Jesus acted, and because we see what's on the horizon as we look at John chapter 13, the cross. So for us, we know Jesus Christ, and so we, as believers, know what true love is. Three things are going to guide our time together this morning. Three things that I want you to note in this text as we build to those verses 34 and 35 here. The first thing is Jesus' inherent authority. The second thing is Judas's satanic self-service. The third thing this morning is Jesus' complete command. So we're going to look at each of those together and build again to verses 34 to 35. So the first thing I want you to note is Jesus' inherent authority. We've studied John's gospel, and we've been here for quite some time, and we've been continually reminded the remedy, the remedy for our objections to what Jesus says, commands that he gives us, imperatives that he shares with us, um, the things that he does, any objections that arise in our hearts, whether spoken or unspoken, whether conscious or subconscious, whether the way that the world operates or like, I'm not sure that I'm jiving with what Jesus says or does here. The remedy for those objections is just a better understanding of who Jesus is, which is, I'm convinced, one of the reasons why John wrote this gospel is so that we might know Jesus better so that we might understand who Jesus Christ is. And I think this is why the Apostle John begins his gospel by writing the first 18 verses. We call it the prologue. It's the prologue to, to, uh, to the gospel. And this is just this theological, high-minded understanding of who Jesus is. Because John knows our tendency. The Holy Spirit, as he inspired John to write this, and John the Apostle, the man who walked next to Jesus, who's actually in this passage himself, who leans back against Jesus and asks, who is the one who's going to betray him? That's John, the beloved disciple. Um, He knows, he understands, after a lifetime of ministry, John, when he writes this gospel, his life is winding down. He's coming to an end. He's had decades to think about his time together with Jesus and just how impactful it was for him and all of the things that Jesus said. And they run through his mind and the Holy Spirit brings them to him and he's inspired to write these things, write these things to us. 
And he understands our nature is to be picky choosy. Like we like to emphasize certain things regarding what Jesus says and what, regarding what Jesus does and regarding what Jesus commands. We like to highlight and downplay certain things. You know this to be true of yourself. You know that there are things that Jesus says that you're like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a stake here. And then you kind of just ignore some of the other stuff that Jesus says and does. This is very typical of ourselves. But John is giving us a wide a breadth of understanding of who Jesus is. So as we learn who Jesus is in John's gospel, we learn that being picky choosy, though, is problematic. We can ignore, we cannot ignore things that God himself has said to us. We can't pick and choose how we live in light of the reality of, uh, in the light of the reality that life is contained within Jesus Christ. We can't live for ourselves knowing full well that Jesus is the king of the universe, the one who is over all things and will never be dethroned. The answer to all of these things is we have to set that aside. Jesus is who scripture tells us he is. His commands should always be of utmost importance to us. We ought to look at them and obey with urgency. Understanding that we have received all that we need in order to follow him in obedience. I would say this to you as well. Jesus is who scripture tells us he is. And so our lives must be marked by relentless pursuit of his person. When we object to something that we see in scripture, when we think to ourselves, that that doesn't really mean that, right? Or if I I could just push this aside and pick it up back later. Again, the remedy for that mindset, the remedy for those objections is to better understand who Jesus is. And so, because Jesus is God's word incarnate, we go to God's word to better understand who he is in order that we might not fall into this trap. In order that we might not fall into a camp where we think that it's of little consequence what the Bible says to us. We ought to obey with urgency because of who Scripture, or because of uh, what Scripture tells us about who Jesus is. Again, not to earn anything from him, but to acknowledge him as our supreme authority. And this is exactly what Jesus is talking about in verses 16 and 17. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus gives two examples of relationships. A servant and a master and a messenger and a sender. These are what we call hierarchical relationships. There is one who has authority, and then there is one who is under that authority. There's one who stands at the top of the totem pole, and one who's a ways down the totem pole. The master, the servant, the sender, the messenger. A master is always greater than his servant, and the sender is always greater than the messenger. We, Jesus' disciples who make up the local church, are always in the position of servant and messenger. Let me say that again. We are always in the position of servant and messenger. 
In fact, those are key elements of what it means to be a disciple. So if we say we want to be disciples of Jesus Christ, and we want to make disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ, then we have to understand what's contained within that. And it's a posture of understanding that we are not the master. We are the servant. We are not, we are not the sender. We are the messenger. In a world that tells you to be your own, your own authority, this is hard sometimes for us to swallow. The elements of what it means to be a disciple, though, need to be at the forefront of our mind as we follow Jesus. A disciple is a servant of King Jesus. He is our master. A disciple is a messenger of Jesus. We are called to take the gospel to the world. We are, a disciple is also a stir, student. This is literally what the word disciple means. We learn from Jesus and we learn from his word. And this is always our relationship to Jesus Christ. It does not change. Jesus says it here, Lord, teacher, master, sender. We are subjects, servants, students, and messengers. We started this point by saying that Jesus has inherent authority. Because the authority that Jesus possesses, the authority that Jesus communicates in these two verses is something that he has always possessed. It is not something that he earned or gained. The first three verses of John's gospel, this is in that prologue section. In the beginning was God's, excuse me, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is the word of God. Jesus was with God in the beginning even into eternity past. Jesus is God. Jesus created everything. This authority is not something that was received or conjured, but something that has always belonged to him. The list in these three verses confirms for us that Jesus' authority isn't derived, but is part of who he is. There is never a time where this authority did not belong to Jesus. So, with that in mind, in verses 16 and 17, Jesus wants to emphasize his authority again in order that we might listen to and carry out his commands as those who are, uh, as the, those who are the messengers, as those who are the servants. You also ought to wash the feet of one another, for I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. The weight behind that command comes through the fact that Jesus' authority is inherent. And then down the page in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also, you are also to love one another. When we read those things, and then our sinful flesh says, who says? This is who says. The one whose authority answers to no higher authority. The one who is in the position right now that he has always been in. All earthly authority is under authority. Kings, politicians, CEOs, you name it. They all answer to someone or something. Jesus' authority is under no authority. And we must obey our King Jesus. Reminded of this fact, um, we are then given a clear example of one who ignores 
the authority that Jesus has and who acts in self-will. So next we see, next thing I want you to see here, after Jesus' inherent authority is Judas's satanic self-service. Jesus' command, backed, it, backed up by his inerrant authority, is to wash the feet of one another. To love one another. Again, by applying the blood of Jesus to those who are given in and who have given in to sin. That, friends, is a dramatically self-sacrificial act. Because if you think to yourself this morning, if you think to yourself, how do I know someone well enough? How do I know someone well enough to feel comfortable calling out sin in their own life. Because that feels like maybe that would be a little bit of, a, of an offense to someone. The act is dramatically self-sacrificial. And there are a couple reasons why. I think because, first because it requires a deep investment in the lives of one another in the local church. Because relationships take time. They take patience. They take maintenance. They take self-control. They take discipline. It's easy to shake a hand on Sunday morning and say, hey, the weather's great. The weather is great. The weather's great outside. But it's hard to invest the time and energy to become a trusted confidant. It's hard. And it takes years of dedicated relationship building to get to a point where someone might confide in you a deep sin that they're struggling with. And yet, this is exactly what we're called to do. It's self-sacrificial because it's going to take time. It's going to take energy. It's going to take patience. It's going to take the trust being torn down and being, having to be rebuilt. It's going to take a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. Many of you in this room have found those types of relationships with others in this room. But you know full well that it didn't happen overnight. It didn't happen just because you set your mind to it and you woke up one day and be like, I really need to have relationships like this. But these are the types of relationships that Jesus is calling us to by calling us to wash the feet of one another. The second thing that makes this self-sacrificial is just, it's kind of right there in, in the title. And maybe this is silly for defining the word with the word, but it's just that. It's self-sacrificial. It hurts a little bit. It's hard. It's a challenge. Because not only because of the external relationship building that has to happen and all of the time and energy and patience and, and trust that goes into that, but also because of what goes on inside. Because of the way that, that, it, uh, that it challenges us. And because of the culture's messaging to us. We're always told that we should indulge ourselves. Take and not give. We're told that we can't give unless we first have taken care of ourselves. We're told when we get on the airplane that we have to put on our own and secure our own oxygen mask before helping others. This isn't what Jesus is talking about in his word at all. We often like to use the excuse that my cup is not full enough to give to others. So you can't serve others in the local church. You say, oh, I can't give to them. Because I'm drained myself. I can't invest in these relationships. I simply don't have time. Everything in the world has sucked away my time. Again, this is not what Jesus did. And we should take note. He calls us here to follow his example. 
I want you to note just how radically countercultural this is. In a world that is continually shoving, take care of yourself, take care of yourself, self-care this, Jesus' actions and his words are completely different. Jesus' actions and words are completely different. He calls us to follow his example. He calls us to take the form of the servant. Paul will pick up on this in Philippians chapter 2. He says that Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And you say, that's great. Jesus, Jesus is God. Jesus can do that. Jesus has an infinite well of life within himself. Of course he can do that. But then Paul exhorts on the front end of that in verse 5, Philippians chapter 2. He says to us, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, in Christ Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, in Christ Jesus. We think about self-care, taking care of ourselves so that we can take care of others. Simply a worldly philosophy, unbiblical. The picture we see of Jesus and exactly what he does is how we are to follow him. Now, this is one of those places, again, we talked about at this beginning, where does Jesus have the authority to say this to us? And the answer is absolutely yes. Jesus has absolutely yes, because it's something inside of me and something inside of you is saying right now, I don't think I can. I don't think I can do this. But when you're on your last dollar, when you're on your last shred of patience with your children, when you're in a position where you feel like you can't move forward because you're physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually exhausted, who are you going to trust? That's what this question boils down to. Who are you going to trust in those moments? Are you going to trust in yourself and your ability to recharge the batteries? You're just going to find yourself in the exact same place in a couple of days, a couple of weeks, a couple of months, a couple of years. The truth of the matter is this. Jesus is the infinite well of life that you need to tap into when you feel like you're at the end of your rope. Not some worldly philosophy that says, do this now. Take care of yourself now. But Jesus, the infinite well of life, says pour yourself out for others and I will take care of you. Love is self-sacrificial. Not just sometimes, love is sacrificial all of the time. And a brutal public execution type of sacrificial. On the other hand, we see the example of Judas. Self-sacrifice, or self-service in this way a rejection of the self-sacrificial service that Jesus talks about here in this passage is satanic. Jesus engages Judas in verses 21 through 30. Or he's talking with his disciples and then he engages with Judas and tells him to go do that which he needs to do quickly. And we're even told in verse 27 that Satan entered into Judas. Oh, that, that's wild. That's wild. Satan enters into Judas here. 
The disciples didn't know, John reflecting on this incident, says that he didn't, they didn't know what was going on. But John, writing years after the death, burial, and resurrection, ascension of Jesus, knew then that Judas went out to betray Jesus. Judas was not a true disciple of Jesus. He was trying to live out from underneath that inherent authority that Jesus possesses. To live outside of Jesus' lordship. He acted in opposition to Jesus' teaching. He served himself instead of Jesus and the fellow disciples. Judas did not bear the marks of a disciple of Jesus. And at that moment, he put that on display. He would betray Jesus Christ for a mere 30 pieces of silver. The most self-serving act in history. Note the nearsightedness of Judas. His self-serving attitude blinded him to the reality that he sat in a room with heaven's greatest treasure. And he would rather follow himself and his whims and his pursuits than follow Jesus. And he betrayed him for a relatively small sum. I wonder, I wonder if you're here this morning, if you're headed down a similar path. Maybe you've bought into a self-serving philosophy. Ignoring others at the expense of making sure that everything in your life is in order, that everything in your life is under control, that everything in your life feels good, that everything in your life, uh, your bank account is in the right place, that you're entertained, that you got everything that you needed this week. You get the idea. The warning here is that by adopting this philosophy, you're blinded to the sin that lurks in your own heart. And you're willing to ignore King Jesus and settle for far less than what he offers. 30 pieces of silver or an infinite, eternal treasure that belongs to us for eternity. Self-service in this sense is satanic. Now, just a caveat here. We gotta, you got to eat today. There are many things that you have that you need to take care of and get done. When I say self-service is, in this sense, is satanic, what I'm saying is a general posture that does not reflect those, that does not reflect the posture that's communicated to us in Philippians chapter 2. Emptying ourselves, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, humbling ourselves. We are told that this is the mind of Christ, a mind that we are called also to have. In this sense, doing the opposite is satanic and exactly what Judas succumbs to. It's here in Judas the grace of God shows us the reality so that we might turn and follow Jesus into self-sacrifice. Final thing I want you to see in this passage this morning before we go to the Lord's table. Jesus' complete command. Obviously, we had a build here, and I mentioned this at the beginning. The build is two verses, 34 and 35. This is where John 13 brings us, the command to love one another. And why everything in John 13 to this point is of utmost importance for us to understand. Jesus has told us exactly how to love one another. Through self-sacrificial service to one another as we battle sin, walking through a sinful world. That's the love of, Je- the love of Jesus 
That's the love that Jesus is talking about. Love can never be unhitched from the commands of Christ. Jesus will say it in John 14, 15, just in the next chapter. If you love me, you will keep my commands. And what's implied here is that if we love one another, we will keep Jesus' commands and serve one another by helping one another keep Jesus' commands. Our love for Jesus is on display when we keep his commands. I'm going to say, the, I'm going to say three things quickly. Our love for Jesus is on display when we keep his commands. If we say we love Jesus and ignore his commands, we're liars. Our love for Jesus is on display when we keep his commands. If you love me, you will keep my commands. Second, our love for one another is on display when we keep Jesus' commands. This is where the world messes this up. Okay, So Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. And then the world says, if you love others, you will tolerate and even endorse the things that they do. But that's not at all what Jesus says. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And then we also say, if you love one another, you will keep my commands. Our love for one another is on display when we keep Jesus' commands. And our love for one another is on display when we help one another keep Jesus' commands. Have you thought about the love that Jesus talks about in this way? If you have a brother or sister in Christ, would it be loving for you to ignore the sin in his or her life? The answer is no. Jesus is Lord, teacher, master, king, his authority inherent, eternal, underived. It would be radically unloving to allow for a brother or sister in Christ to try and live out from underneath that authority. You'll notice I titled this, maybe you didn't, that's fine. I titled this sermon, Jesus' Evangelism Strategy. The church, we talk about evangelism and we talk about what does it look like to proclaim the gospel to men and women who have not believed in the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Evangelism is sharing the good news of Jesus with people who do not believe. So the question is, have we really actually talked about evangelism yet? Modern Christians often think about strategies for reaching unbelievers with the gospel. We put on events and train church members to talk to people on the street about Jesus. All those things are good and fine, but verse 35 tells us how the world will know Jesus. How they will know that we follow Jesus. It's the interactions that we have with one another within the local church. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Followers of Jesus love Jesus and one another by keeping the commands of Jesus and helping one another keep the commands of Jesus. Followers of Jesus love Jesus and one another by keeping the commands of Jesus and helping one another keep the commands of Jesus. The world will know that we follow Jesus by the self-sacrificial love that we have for others in the local church. The world will know that we follow Jesus by the self-sacrificial love that we have for others in the local church. To claim, and I hope we do, that we long for unbelievers in our community to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, but to ignore the commands of Jesus ourselves and ignore our brothers and sisters in Christ while they get beat up in the battle against sin is to contradict ourselves. Is to contradict ourselves. So Buffalo City Church, if we want to reach Jamestown with the gospel, we must walk as Jesus walked. We must live like Jesus lived in self-sacrificial love for others in this place. 
And Jamestown will see what we believe about Jesus by the way we love one another. And through us, they will know. Does that not mean that we don't need to speak the gospel? By no means. We need to proclaim the gospel verbally with our lips. We need to verbally share the gospel, articulating the forgiveness of sins and the right standing with God that are offered to us through Christ's sacrifice. But our words are validated by the self-sacrificial love that we have for others here. And you know the objections? Church people are always slandering each other. They're always fighting over this or that or the other thing. They're always wondering how, how people are going to serve them. We're always allowing people to suffer alone. Many people in the th- church think, in churches think that their spiritual gift is to point out the things that they think is wrong, the way that the church is organized, or how silly the leadership acted in this instance, or well, could we do anything better than those who are currently, or they, they think they could do everything better than those who are currently serving. If you heard the gospel message from someone who lived like that, would you believe them? If that person walks the way that Jesus walked, Why would we want anything to do with that? But for people who do these things, they aren't following Jesus. They're just showing the world that they're disciples of self and not disciples of Jesus. They rewrite this verse to say, By this all people will know that you are self-disciples if you shout one another down and slander one another during prayer meetings and tell, tell grieving people good luck feel better in the midst of their loss. But, in contrast, followers of Jesus love Jesus. Our followers of Jesus love Jesus and one another by keeping the commands of Jesus and helping one another keep the commands of Jesus. When when a world knows that we follow Jesus by the self-sacrificial love that we have for others in the local church. So Buffalo City Church, we're going to turn our attention to the Lord's table this morning. And I want to encourage you. In the near seven-year history of Buffalo City Church, this has happened many, many times. And so the, the encouragement to us is to continue on. Continue investing deeply in those relationships with men and women and boys and girls around you. Continue pulling them into a situation where they can believe, repent and believe the gospel afresh. I think, I think it's, it's, it's evident to me. That God, as your pastor, it's evident to me that God is at work here. So many of you grown in godly maturity over such a short period of time, and it is genuinely staggering. I've seen some of you lay down your lives over and over and over again for people in this congregation, helping others navigate difficulty, obeying Jesus and his word, understanding that it's not because you need to earn something or out of guilt or shame, but because God in Christ has given you all things. They belong to you. So I want to encourage you to keep going this morning, even as we come to the Lord's table. Keep learning what it means to follow Jesus and to walk as he walked and to self-sacrificially serving and loving one another. Keep showing the world what it means to, to be disciples of Jesus and keep looking to Christ. His sacrifice enables this love and gives us a perfect example of it. So, as a church, may we, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through everything that Jesus gives to us, may we stay vigilant to love one another as Christ has loved us and commands us to love.
We're going to reflect in the love of Christ for us now as we come to the Lord's table, understanding that it is through his sacrifice, through his bodily sacrifice, a real historic event, Jesus crucified, buried, and raised, ascended to rule and reign at the Father's right hand, that our hope and our, our, uh, our life lies. So we're going to approach the table. We're going to take the bread. We're going to recall Christ's sacrifice, that broken body that should have been ours. We're going to recall the shed blood of Jesus, recalling the forgiveness of sins that he provided for us through his sacrifice. We're going to take the elements together. We're going to be united together as a body. If there is someone here in this place who has something against a brother or sister in Christ here, take a moment. Go to that person. Speak to them directly. Ask for forgiveness. Be reconciled to one another. Jesus is very clear to not approach the table in a manner that is unworthy. To hold bitterness, resentment, unforgiveness against a brother or sister in Christ is to do just that. And so it may be this morning, if you're here, that the most spiritual thing that you could do is to refrain from taking the Lord's Supper until that relationship is resolved, until reconciliation is found. As always, when we come to the Lord's table, I want to remind you that this is for followers of Jesus. You should not approach this table if you're not sure what it means to follow Jesus, if you're not sure what it means to be a Christian. If that's you this morning, I'd love to talk to you more about the gospel, talk to you more about the understanding of, of, of what it means to be a child of God. Additionally, um, parents, if you have kids in here, take a moment, understand and know where they stand. Um, if they have made a credible profession of faith, invite them to participate together with you at the Lord's table. But if not, use this as an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. You don't need to be a member of the church to, to take the Lord's table, but I would ask that you be a member in good standing or a regular attender of an evangelical church that preaches the same gospel as we do here. So in a second, I'm going to pray. Would you come forward when you're ready in your heart as the worship team comes up on, on the platform and uh, grab the elements when you're ready, and then you may take them at your seat when you're prepared in your own heart.